You're listening to And hey, you're listening to Books and Boba, a book loving podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And on this episode, we have a great author chat with Leo Min, uh, the author of Beating Heart Baby, their debut novel coming out July 26th, 2022. Um, it is a coming of age um, story about music and band and first love and anime. And man, it was just a lot of fun to read. And we had a great chat with Leo, which, um, you know, in the middle devolved into kind of a, a chat about anime, too. Yeah, we're all geeks. <laughs> we're all geeks. And we were just so excited that we all had like this cultural touchstone that we could just bond over. Um, but for those of you who uh, don't know anything about the book, uh, so Beating Heart Baby is an achingly romantic love letter to internet friendships, anime, and indie rock. Uh, it's about Santi, who is a mixed race Filipino who kind of has like a prickly first impression on Sua, who is a Korean-Japanese Achillean trans male, uh, who is the star trumpeter of the Sun Showers marching band. And it just, all the feels yeah. from there. It follows know? their relationship through high school all the way to young adulthood. And such a fun and just affecting read too. Like I did not expect to relate so hard to this book, but it's also a book set in Los Angeles. So there's a lot of like just so many just common intersection points um, between us, the author and the story and we had a great chat with Leo um, about their inspirations for the book, about their thoughts on the power of music, representation, and, you know, like we mentioned, lots of anime talk, too. So um, without further ado, here is our conversation with Leo Min. And we're here with author Leo Min, who is the author of Beating Heart Baby. Hello, Leo. Welcome to our show. Hi. Good to be here. <laughs> right before we started this interview, um, Leo and Rhea were catching up because I guess they have a personal connection that I didn't know about. Yeah. Uh, so, so Leo's agent is my college freshman roommate. And... It was such a blast from the past. Like, literally, we have not talked to each other in, like, 10 years. But it was just, like, a instant connection of just, like, oh, my God. Like, you work in the book industry and you do a book podcast. Like, it's such a good fit for, for both of us. So very, very excited to have Leo here. Yeah. Yeah. And I was also just saying that the reason that I know my agent, Dana, is through basically another college freshman connection um, so truly the smallest, smallest, smallest world. Um, uh, it's funny because your book is about like connections and reconnecting. And I was like, oh, it's it's meant to be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I didn't want to be the one who made the jump, but I'm glad that, you know, you you, you threw that into the, the ether. Uh, yeah. I mean, these kinds of things um, that like serendipitous moment. Uh, when someone comes into your life at a moment that like you don't necessarily 
know what it means to follow, like to have this person by your side through this part of your journey and whether or not uh, you end up coming back to each other or not is almost not the point. But in those, like in the return, uh, there is something pretty powerful about that. I actually had a, like a, a reconnection with someone that I knew in high school this year. Um, and you know, it's the kind of thing where a lot of stuff that happened between then and now, um, was just like, like I knew back then what we had was special and all of that was so like in the back of my mind, I always regretted the fact that like we drifted apart from each other. Uh, and definitely <laughs> through writing the book, there was a lot of like, okay, so can I walk my own walk? Um, and it's now at the point where like I sent her flowers when she got engaged. Uh, and I'm like, and now we like talk on the regular and we're, we're never going to come back to the point in our life where we were, you know, sitting at the biology table together. But it's still about like, I, I knew back then what we had was something that we, I should have held on to. Uh, and now in my big adult life, one of the things that I'm trying to be better about is basically doing that. Like instead of waiting for the moment to happen on its own or whatever to kind of not manifest it necessarily, but to actively go for it. Yeah. I mean, reading your book really brought... Um, memories like I myself was also a marching band geek back in high school. Some of my closest friends these days were (laughs) friends from my close friends from my band days. Um, And so there's just a lot to to connect to. Um, But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. We always like to start (laughs) off our author chats with asking you about your journey to becoming author, just because, you know, we're a podcast that focuses on Asian, Asian American authors. Um, it's a calling that is still, you know, it's not where we wanted to be, but, you know, whenever someone does make it and gets published, we want to celebrate that. And we also want to celebrate their journey. So can you let us know your journey into becoming an author? Yeah. Um, so prior to writing Beating Heart Baby, which I started in the summer of 2018, the last time I wrote long form fiction was when I was maybe like 11 or 12 years old. Uh, like we had these life book journals for English class. And I, I, I had this like competition with a friend where basically we were trying to finish as many life books as possible. We wanted it to be like at the end of the year, like whoever had the most composition books stacked up on the desk won. And he's now like a doctors so you know like uh, so like i hope i won right um but uh for the past decade plus of my life i've been in and out of music journalism and that was something that i wasn't allowed to go to shows as a kid it was a big deal when i finally like took the train to New York City with my neighbor, like my older neighbor, to go see a like a show at Madison Square Garden. Uh and like I had to like on on the baby cell phone, like be checking with my parents like the entire time. Uh but then when I moved from New Jersey to Los Angeles for undergrad, uh that was when I started actively being like, I'm going to go to shows. I'm going to be the person who in their like late teens, early 20s is out at shows. Uh, And then basically that through a stroke of what I would call like divine intervention, uh, the journalism school at my undergrad started a new digital publication. And they were, you know, basically had their little thing at the activities fair or whatever. And 
I signed up because I was like, okay, cool. Like it's a new thing. You know, I'm a little bit intimidated by the process of getting involved with the campus paper. Uh, so I'm going to go for this thing where it'll be like a lot more chill and nobody can say no to me. Uh, despite not coming from like any sort of like, you know, high school newspaper or whatever. Uh, although I did do Lit Mag. Um, and another thing, sorry, just to jump back to the connection thing. I am sending a copy of the book to one of my Lit Mag advisors. Shout out Miss Kim at MHS. Uh, so um, the, uh, yeah, so signed up and I was, they were like, oh, what do you want to write about? And I said, well, you know, I want to I wanna write about music and it's music in Los Angeles, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> uh, and very quickly, they were like, cool, you're going to run the entire section now. So, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the thing that they didn't, I didn't realize until I had actually like started working uh, was that most of the people that were running this program were in the, were in grad school. They were doing their like masters in journalism and stuff like that. So they did not have quote unquote time to be focusing on anything that they weren't like seriously trying to develop their own resume about. And nobody in the arts and like culture and entertainment section wanted to take on music. So I was like, you know what? Like I'm a freshman in Los Angeles with no car, but I'm going to be out there uh, not every week, but like at least a couple times a month, like going to shows, writing about shows. There are plenty of shows in Los Angeles. I used to pay for my own tickets. And then as the section and my coverage and the overall like profile of this publication started to rise. And because it was affiliated with a campus, I started going to shows for free. Uh, and then I forget when it was, but at the end of my first semester, uh, my editor was like, hey, like along with your your ticket for this show, would you also like a photo pass? And I was like, what is a photo pass? And that's how I started getting to shooting shows, which added a whole other dimension um, to my music experience. Um, so fast forward, uh, maybe like... I can't do arithmetic in my head. Um, but fast forward an <laughs> indeterminable amount of time. And basically, I started moving out of live music coverage into doing more uh, reported stories, uh, more feature writing. I would say that the two turning points in my music journalism quote-unquote career uh, were... One, I interviewed Mitski for Hyphen Magazine, Shadow Hyphen Magazine, yeah. uh, back in 2015 when uh, her album Bury Me at Makeout Creek was just starting to like hit into the indie rock sphere. And then two, I reported a story for a now shuttered publication called The Outline uh, about the uh, overrepresentation of Asian kids dying in raves in Southern California. Uh, and that was a story that drew both from my own experience being in and out of that scene and also just like the, and also like was my first entry into, I think, like harder reporting. Uh, and that was when I was like, okay, like I can take on a project of this size and I can do the story uh, justice in a way that I'm sitting back and I'm like, yeah, I'm proud of the work I did. I think it's important. I think it's reaching people who need to, to need to see this. And I feel actively good about myself writing it, um, even if it's hard, which uh, I also come, come from like a, a history, a personal history of taking up blogging jobs. Uh, and anybody who's been through the content, the digital content minds knows that blogging is like the least 
it's like so thankless. Oh, it's so thankless. And you're like, why am I doing this? Rira has been there. Yeah. I Yeah, I have been through the trenches of blogging and also just writing for digital uh, publications. Yeah, it's it's rough, but it also gives you the skill sets that you need to take on bigger projects. You have to be a jack of all trades. But like you said, it is a very thankless <laughs> job. And, yeah. you know, people think that if you can write a blog, anybody can do it. And it's like, technically <laughs> you can, but also depends on the quality of the writing. Um, but you mentioned uh, interviewing musicians like Mitsuki, um, and you've also interviewed uh, Japanese Breakfast and mm-hmm. Rina Sawayama. Um, so what was it like transitioning from writing about real musicians and then <laughs> writing about fictional ones and getting into those mindsets as like a first person character? Yeah. Um, first of all, uh, stream Rina Sawayama's Catch Me in the Air. I saw this live back in April and it knocked my socks off then. Um, it just dropped today, so I just had to give a shout. Uh, and then there's definitely the aspect of you are, how do I put it? You are aware of basically all the backstage stuff that's happening around whatever the the public front of this person is. And even when you're interacting with them in a press setting, there is that element of like the moments that would make a story real or that would like I would personally try to find are the like the instances in which that slipped, uh, which isn't to say that it's always like, uh, ugh, like, you know, like you unzip yourself and like the ugly part of your personality pulls out or whatever. But it's more just like the reminder that um, for everything that you're trying to do with your music and your art, uh, there is a real person under that, um, you know, like even the most reified pop stars of our time, uh, when they go to sleep, are thinking about the same things that we're thinking about, you know, as they're drifting off to sleep or whatever. Um, and I was fortunate enough in uh, my career to be interviewing a lot of Asian American women uh, and a lot of Asian American women working in spaces that were and are still pretty not not necessarily hostile, but it's they're they're doing work in ways that their peers do not have to, and they are kind of starting to get their flowers now, uh, especially within music and especially within indie rock music. But it's still not not challenging in a lot of ways, uh, and you can see that with a lot of the babyer artists, someone like Biba Doobie, uh, someone like uh, Luna Lee, where they they actually have like a generation of artists who have broke that ground for them in some ways. So they aren't being asked the same kinds of questions and they have more uh, literally diverse people interviewing them too, which wasn't always the case. And so the breadth of stuff that they're allowed to talk about is a lot bigger. Uh, when I was doing interviews back in even like the mid 2000s, 2010s, wild time, uh, <laughs> there was still a lot of expectation to like talk about being a woman in rock music. And if you're Asian to talk about being like Asian in like a white space. And it's not to say that there isn't value in excavating that, but, um, but the fact that like the conversation could be about a lot more now, and you can start to reach the depth of the profiling that's always been available to a certain other kind of say artist or public figure. So with that, uh, and then also being Asian myself, uh, there is that element of like, how do I, the story was always going to be about a musician. Uh, That was always going to be part of it. 
uh, part of my little elevator pitch for BHB is uh, boys bands in Los Angeles. And obviously the, the, the band aspect of it is both marching band and also band bands. Um, and as I started to think about how I wanted to write about it, part of this had to be about um, like identity, but as far as racial identity and ethnic identity, that was something that I wanted to be present in the story. And it is, I consider it like the core of the story in a lot of ways. But um, when it comes to this character's actual artistic journey, like that is not the part that is being placed front and center to him, but then he knows what is important to himself and how this affects him. And so slipping into the first person POV in that way was like, how do I keep these two tracks running simultaneously? And how would they actually track if you were a real person in real life? And luckily I have all of these examples now of people multi-track drifting through like all of these different things about themselves while also serving up like a dominant narrative for an outside audience who is not privy to all of the, the stuff that's going on in their head. So being able to basically toggle between these different strata um, and know kind of when I wanted to dip in and out of a certain thing in the same way that someone maybe answering interviews might choose to dip in and out of certain things as they're talking to different outlets. Um, and also it's just like, yeah, like hearing about the reality of touring um, and seeing the way that people actually move once they're not like glittered up on stage is also just helpful for world building too. Yeah. Does that kind of answer that question? I'm like not really hitting the target. Oh, but- that's <laughs> fine. It's totally fine. Um, We'll probably drift in and out throughout this conversation anyways. Um, But yeah, I mean, this book, I I was honestly kind of surprised how relatable. Like, I came in as like a cishet dude, assuming I'll probably be more like a tourist, kind of like peeking in uh, on this representation. But I found myself really relating to everything, um, specifically because, again, I shared history as a former band geek. But also, you know, Riru and I both um, are former staff members of Collaboration. We both used to run run their blog. I used to do a lot of the events. We work with a lot of Asian American artists. And we hold conversations with communities throughout the, the country. And we see how, like, the conversation it's ongoing, but it's at different paces. People are at different levels of how comfortable they are with their own identity as, you know, as Asians, as queer, as, you know, all the different multitudes and intersections that we have. And so, yeah, for a long time, the conversations in the mainstream has always been very surface level, very basic. And, you know, we see that now starting to change because, you know, the conversation has caught up a little bit. But I really appreciate how much you caught that, like, I totally get it. When I used to work with young artists and seeing them trying to straddle the line between, okay, I know representation is important, but I just want to make music. I just want to tell my stories. I don't want this, the burden of this representation on me because it's just so heavy. But at the same time, it's going to be there because of the act of creating art for consumption, right? And I thought you captured those those tensions really well in your book. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely like... <sighs> The irony, of course, of like being in the space where I am now, I am no longer the person like basically announcing like, here comes the next act. You know, I'm the person now riding the bull, you know, like Mm -hmm. I'm the person on the stage talking about this thing in which this character, um, like, well, multiple characters in the book, like talk about like the, the kind of like 
conflict that inherently exists when you are trying to be known for something that both is and isn't about yourself because how can it not be about yourself uh but also like yeah like it does exist in its own space um and especially with music uh in the same way with writing where there isn't element of it where you don't have to be present like the author does not have to be in the room with you or like the the song that you hear playing through your speaker the artist isn't necessarily in the room with you and to some extent the digital world has really transformed the relationship between uh between like like artists as a catch-all uh and they're the people who eventually become their fans and the way that like fandom is mobilized and the way that that is um it can be both uh the thing that you need to break you through whatever seal is keeping you from reaching the full potential of your dreams uh but it's also um like it is something that you then have to carry you know it's like yes like uh, a thousand feathers make your wings, but you gotta you gotta make sure that those feathers stay there, you know. Uh, and it's like, yeah. So like, I am actively going through it right now. This is like part of that whole process, and I'm kind of like, there's a part of me that is like watching this happening in like 4D space or something, being like, wow, like you're you're doing that thing. How does that feel? And me right now talking to you, answering this shapeless <laughs> entity, uh, is saying, you know. Um, yeah, it feels pretty weird. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a there's a point in your book where uh, Sua says, I don't really want to explain my gender, the way it interacts with other parts of my identity and my art to other people. And I was like, wow, that like, you just nailed it. And I feel like this is a very common feeling, not just among queer creators, but like BIPOC creators, you see the entertainment industry push these creators to market and commodify their identities and churn their trauma into commercialized goods. And um, as someone who primarily worked in Asian American journalism, I was like, am I only going to be writing about (laughs) Asian Americans for the rest of my life? Because I really would like to write about just other stories. But Uh, there is a responsibility when it comes to representing um, your community. And also, like, you can't really escape from it because literally it's not like we can unzip ourselves and, like, (laughs) come out of our human skin suits. Yeah, I mean... I'm not going to actually step into this water uh, because it is very chilly. But the shall we say there is certainly a conversation to be had about the way that racial representation works versus more broadly gender expression and representation. And that's pretty much all I want to say about it publicly. But um, the thing that, yeah, like basically like a part of the reason why I started to back off a little bit from music journalism as something was one, it does not pay well. Journalism does not pay well. If you are like an aspiring journalist listening to this, um, run, run away. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't necessarily (laughs) say run, but, um, take some time to really consider what it is that you want to do. And if you have, and like definitely talk to other people about it before you start to wade full in. Um, yeah, online media is just... Anyway, 
digression. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, and the other part was that I didn't want to. I didn't want to force myself to chase stories and chase pitches that in theory would have been easier for me to land for a variety of reasons uh, at the expense of what it is that I wanted to do. Because I do actually love interviewing like Asian American musicians. Like that is something that I actually am very actively interested in. But I didn't want to be chasing the... uh, this is going to sound blithe, but I kind of mean it. I didn't want to be chasing whatever the industry flavor of the week for like Asian representation might be at a certain point. Uh, and I didn't want to chase stories where I could basically like feel like my ancestors like shaking their fists at me, you know, when I type in the like, you know, because like Asian American, like heritage, pride month, and also just like, with yeah, just like, Basically, just like as many buzzwords as possible to get the editor be like, oh, yeah, we do need an Asian article. So like, let's let's put this forward, you know, Um, which, again, there are a lot of people in the industry. In this case, I'm talking about journalism, I guess, uh, who are well-meaning when they have this kind of like feedback loop in their minds and when they commission these kinds of stories, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And at the same time, you you cannot like turn the part of your head that recognizes that dog whistle off either. Cause you're like, I know why I have this story. I know why you said yes to me. I know how you're going to frame it. I know how it's going to be. Uh, and am I okay with that? It is, is it worth $250 to get a flashy byline about the, <laughs> the thing that I'm like, why am I, why am I being paid to talk about it? And why is it so little money? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Um, Riru and I have talked about it before, but there's a reason why, like, all Asian American, I guess, content creators are exhausted after the month of May because it's the one month where we get to work every single week. I know. It's like every <laughs> single person you know and worked with just reach out to you at the same time and you just have to, like, go through your emails being like, which one is worth pursuing right uh but this is actually like it's really funny because recently very recently on book twitter there was this debate about how white queer representation should be prioritized over uh cishet bipoc uh representation in books and your cast is mostly made up of uh queer bipoc so (laughs) i wanted to ask like what do you hope your readers see in their friendship and, uh, you know, just like the diversity in that cast? So I've, oh man. Um, I mean, you don't have to answer no, if it's I like mean, too uncomfortable. Just, but. Where, where this question started and where it ended are very, I'm, I'm, I'm glad this is the question I'm answering. Uh, so, uh, what I'll say is that my experience in, Los Angeles and the friends that I've made there specifically uh, were a huge inspiration on the world that I created. Um, More to the point, though, I used to take a bus around Fairfax in Los Angeles. Um, It was a 780 uh, and it would run up Fairfax and I'd be taking it at the time when the kids at Fairfax High School were coming out of school. So um, like... Even now, whenever like whenever I'm on the bus with like teenagers, 
I pay attention to what they're talking about. One, to, to, to fuel my own personal <laughs> fountain of youth. And two, because it's like, if this is my audience, like how are they actually speaking? How are they actually moving around each other, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then when I was in LA too, I used to volunteer with... Um, with organizations that like sometimes I would be going into high schools or sometimes be like working with kids at like an outside location. Uh, and it's like the, the friend groups that coalesce, at least in Los Angeles, from what I observed, are like, that's how it kind of is. Uh, and I would say that like the California Asian experience uh, coming from the East Coast and coming from a you know, a place in the East Coast that for most <clears throat> of my childhood had like rolling farmland. Uh, like, and I was like one of like a handful, a handful of non-white kids in my class. Like the California Asian experience, at least within like cities. Um, and I would say like more broadly, the uh, California student bob, like student bobby, uh, the student body, <laughs> uh, like, population mix is inherently a lot more diverse. Uh, and so it's like not, it's not a stretch. And it's like, so it's funny, like seeing like reviews and things like that pick out um, the fact that there are like, it's a majority like multiracial coalition uh, where it's like, that's just kind of how it is. Um, I don't really think that that's something that was consciously done on my part. Like I modeled a lot of these the, the characters in the friend group after my friends or like their friends. Um, and the summer before I started writing BHB, I was working uh, at a children's summer camp in Oakland. And again, like the uh, talking with, especially like some of the other teachers there about like the kids and about their own childhoods in the Bay Area. Uh, it's like, yeah, like the fact that I had this like whole like, not like necessarily capital T traumatic, although in some ways it was uh, experience with like race when I was growing up. Uh, and then it's like, there are different things at work and it's not as though there are not similar dynamics happening in different ways. But like that component of it, we're like, oh, like I'm the only not white person. That is not a thing in a lot of places, um, especially like the ethnic enclaves of these big California cities. So it ends up being like, I'm just reflecting what I see, what I saw. But the fact that this is not a universal experience uh, and that people cannot seemingly, uh, shall we say, compute the idea that uh, POC can also be queer uh, is like, you know, like, hey, yeah, like we're out here. They're out here. You know, like it's not just We're, like, we're not unicorns. Yeah, you know. <laughs> um, and like that was something that I had to kind of shift in my thinking when I landed in California where I was like, a lot of my friends do not have the same baggage that I do about my race and about the way that I'm like viewed in the world because they have their own baggage to be clear, but that was not a thing for them in the same way. So then how do you, how does that change the way that you move through the world? How does that change the way that you see yourself in context with the people around you? How does that change your entire experience of like, coming of age and with like finding yourself and like reaching and like building your identity when that part of your identity is not like a wobbly pillar. Like that's something that I would have killed to have growing up. And so much of like the work that I've done with myself uh, over the years is basically like affirming that this thing has always existed in my life and I can have a relationship with it that is not 
one based in fear and is not one based in like this like self-conscious hang up. Instead, it can be like, okay, I'm Asian and yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> you, so, you don't have to be just one or two things. We right. contain multitudes. Yeah. But yeah. it's funny because Marvin is someone who grew up in California and like he has this confidence of just like, like you said, not a wobbly pillar. Like he just, he's just like, I am Asian. I'm Asian American. Like it doesn't matter. (laughs) Totally changes the way that you carry yourself. Like I would say that both transitioning and then just like also having this, like this unshakable, not like faith per se, but just like, I, like, I no longer think about like the way that my being Asian affects other people in this, like, and obviously this is not like a, this is not an undangerous game sometimes, but it's like, it changes the way that I walk. It changes the way that I talk. It changes the way that when I enter a room, I no longer am like waiting for the other shoe to drop in the same way. Yeah. I mean, does that make sense? (laughs) Um, like Rira said, I, gr- I grew up in the San Gabriel Valley, you know, until I, even with college, the UC system here is also very, very diverse. Like, I've always been to schools that were majority, like, not white. Um, it yeah. wasn't until I moved to the East Coast for a few years where I finally learned what it felt like to be a minority. Um, but yeah, definitely, like, you can definitely tell the difference between, like, when I got there and I met people who were for the first time, like the only Asian kid in their school and kind of the difference in like our relationship to our identities. And, you know, this is the reason why I love that you set the first half of your book in like a marching band, like setting, because I feel like I also really love just your exploration of marching band culture. You know, we also (laughs) called our freshmen freshmen. They didn't have names until we gave them Mm -hmm. one. Um, And you didn't go in depth into field shows. And I was just like, (laughs) I feel like I've been transported. It's been 20 years since since I last marched in the show, but um, definitely went back to those times. And I think, God, talking about marching band, lost my train of thought. Um, I didn't want to say, I thought it was genius. And I don't know if this was intentional, probably, um, that you made your main character, Sua, like a very confident, almost arrogant musician, a trumpet player. Because of course, of course they were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean... Um... Yeah, I think that like the the funny thing, and I've heard this feedback from a couple other people too, which is like, you know, Santi is the person who like was growing up as like the only not white kid. And so like he arrives in LA and is like, Oh my god, yeah. What is this? Like, what is this? And then yeah, with Sue's character, it's like one, yeah, of course he played like if he didn't play trumpet, he would have played brass, right? Yeah. Or he would have been in drumline. Um oh, yeah. But then he is someone who is like, he's really sure of himself in a way that um, I think partially, you know, the the ambient nature of his upbringing is that, but it's also like, yeah, like trumpet is a showy instrument. Like you don't play trumpet to like fade into the background um, in the same way that like, so when I first, I did uh, marching band in college for three years. I didn't do it in high school, but all of my friends were in marching band and I had, I was green with envy every time they like went to a competition or like did whatever. Uh, and then I had my fill of being at a football school uh, in their marching band. So I played flute for most of my life. And when I joined marching band, the a unique feature about our band was that uh, f- as one of the fight songs, um, 
there is a horn call at the end that is played by mellophone players. Mm-hmm. And they like will step out from the rest of the band. And during like football games, they would actually run down to the end zone uh, and like play in front of like this giant 90,000 people stadium. And it was like this whole thing. Everybody, nobody knows what a mellophone is, but everybody knew about the horns. <laughs> um, and so when I joined and I was signing up for the, the flute section, going through the orientation there, and then... Uh, when the section leaders all broke out to play some of the fight songs and I saw the mellophone players like step forward and like and do the horn call, I was like, what is that? What is that? And like, what about like, everybody always jokes that woodwinds are like non-essential in marching band, which is not true. Uh, but I was like, do I really want to be playing flute when I know that that exists? <laughs> and so I switched and started playing horn. And so I was like, I, that was one of the things that like, um, yeah, like as part of my like slow transformation into somebody who was like more sure of themselves and a little bit more like self-collected and less self-conscious about everything that they did. Um, I was like, you know what? Like, I'm going to put myself out there. I'm going to play brass for the first time. I'm going to play something that, um, I have perfect pitch, so reading sheet music is actually very hard for oh me. Oh my gosh, yeah. that is well, amazing. But it's it's like it's really not that uncommon amongst like musicians. I would have to say, but like so, it's like when I was reading the music, the, the sound that I would make was not the sound in my head, and it tripped me up so hard. So I learned all my music by ear. I had never marched before. All of this stuff like coalesced, um, and it was like, am I? Do I really want to be doing this? And the answer at the end of the day was, yeah. It was like important for me as a person to do this thing that I was uncomfortable with. My section leaders for my freshman year were frat bros. Like it was just a whole bunch of stuff <laughs> like out of out of like sun roasting into a flash fryer, you know? Um, yeah, so, those, those California summers are no joke. I mean, <laughs> my, I had like a bangs tan line. I had like multiple levels sunburn tan lines for like every type of shirt that I wore. My sock tan line, un unforgivable um but yeah so like the fact that like sue plays trumpet is is very intentional in that sense where it's like yeah he is someone who like even when he's telling himself he doesn't want to reach for the sun he is reaching for the sun yeah i love your depiction of all like the the rituals like you mentioned like there's a lot of just marching man people take marching man very seriously and i feel like it's part of what like it's a good way to kind of build that confidence because you're you're so serious about this thing that no one else gets Right, <laughs> that's just yeah. the magic of being of all the people you see. Yeah, American same thing with like camaraderie. Yeah, yeah. What is camaraderie. Yeah. Like with, uh, like with the bond with oh, uh, okay, marching yes, band the kids. Camar- you know, yes, yes, like, yes. I was like because it's like such a camaraderie. such a small like it's it's such a specific thing. And of course, like Marvin said, like no one else gets it, so you're <laughs> able to build that bond like much quicker. I actually thought the high school mascot name was pretty. Uh, Pretty fitting, sun showers. Uh, how did you come up with that? <laughs> so there is, I really don't own that many records uh, for someone who like loves music or whatever. Um, but one of the records that uh, I do have in my like household collection is by this band called Dr. Buzzard's Original Savannah Band. And it's from like, I want to say like the 70s or 80s. Um, uh, this is like something that I would fact check if I, anyway, but they have a song on the record called Sun Showers. And it's like, this was, I didn't grow up with like records. I did not understand that records were a thing until I basically hit like 
college. And all of a sudden, like every, especially like the film kids and people like that would be like, oh, like this is my like deep cut ambient jazz record collection. And I'm like, okay, sure. Um, but like, I've also am friends with a lot of musicians like then and also especially now uh, where, um, sorry, this is like a whole pivot. But so I really like the name Sun Showers and I really like the song Sun Showers. And so when I was first coming up with a working title for the book, uh, the working title was The Sun Shower Sets, The Sun Shower Sessions. Um, and it was something that I just like kept in my back pocket, even when the name of the book changed. And uh, so when it came time to like name the, you know, the mascot for the high school, it was like done, sun showers, easy peasy. There's a lot of stuff in the book where it was like, I took, a, I just, like put a little note in my notes app or whatever, like, oh, this could be like cool, like later on down the line, uh, but I don't really know what to use it for, blah, blah, blah. So sun showers uh, was one of those things. Emo ocean was also one of those things. That was like from... 2014 or 2015, I was like, if I ever become a DJ, I want to use this. I was listening to a lot of <laughs> Carly Rae Jepsen, Carly Rae Jepsen, because uh, her album Emotion like was and is very important to me. Um, and it was just like, yeah, like just thinking about like emotion, emotion, emotion. And I was like, oh, like you know, uh, the emotion, ha, if you break it up or whatever. And that was like a thing in my notes app for years, <laughs> and then it became. So it became everything one could say. So <laughs> it's yeah. also brilliantly used in your book as a BBS handle. And um, <laughs> that brings us to the other thing that I totally related to, which is geeking out with friends about anime, which was definitely <laughs> something that we did in high school as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, what I have to say is that like anime is so ascendant in the culture. If any of my friends are listening <laughs> to this, they're going to start laughing right now because I've been <laughs> shouting this into the world for like years. Uh, there is like, if you hang out with kids, the visibility and like awareness that they have about anime, about animation is so, so high. I cannot walk to my local grocery store without bumping into someone like wearing an Akatsuki jacket. You know, like <laughs> it is like out there. People are out there uh, in the Bay Area. And I'm sure this is the case with Los Angeles. Like cars are plastered with stickers. Uh, people walk around with the shirts, with the gear. Like I see the Hypeland Hunter Hunter merch from a mile away. And I'm like, I know, I see you. <laughs> I see you out here. But it wasn't the case like that when we were growing up. So, ah! anyway, yeah. that's all I have to say. No, for yeah, sure. Yeah. Like your characters connecting over like this obscure anime they watched. Definitely. Like we had a, a store on the way home uh, from high school that rented out like bootleg um, VHS oh, tapes. Yeah. Um, yeah, that yeah. I would, you know, rent and walk home and watch with my friends. And we just talk about like deep cuts, like, you know, Escaflone, like, um, um, you are the Flame second Rekka. person who has brought up Escaflone recently. <laughs> and I'm like, damn, I gotta watch it. Like, oh. people will be like, no one else has ever heard of this show. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, it's because like, it's, it's very old. Now. That's why. I'm not sure. It, sure. it is very old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's funny how you bring up like DHS fan subs because, um, like, I watched it through like DVDs that my friends would burn in anime <laughs> club and church. And we would just like exchange them as if it was like a drug deal. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And, like, I, I just think that, like, anime is just so, I don't know, like, you see yourself in so many ways because, like, it just doesn't have boundaries. Like, you can be a superhero, you can be, <laughs> like, a creature, like, really, you will find yourself in a character somewhere in some anime. <laughs> this is 
Okay, so I just, this is my soapbox. Anime is like the animation period, but within anime, because it is an Asian production a lot of the time, even though that's also changing, uh, where it's like, sure, most of these characters do not look like you and your friends. And sure, like the world that you are in is not, you know, your world in that sense. But like, Asian culture is so, so, so steeped into the story, the designs, the iconography, uh, the music that is used and that they choose to highlight, even when I don't like it, uh, (laughs) where it's like, this is, this is something that opens up and reshapes the way that you visually and sonically can experience your own world and your own sense of self, you know, Um, where it's like, yeah, like CGI has gotten better and like practical effects are very cool still. But in terms of pushing that limit of possibility out beyond the horizon that you can't even like fathom, like the directing can be impossible. All of the fashion can be impossible. Um, The beauty, the way that like, uh, that drama and emotional relationships are played out, it's like there is no tether to the real world except whatever it is that you want to build. And so you have so much freedom within that. And that's why I'm so disappointed by most anime because I'm like, you have all of this time. <laughs> Someone like sat down and drew all of this stuff or like, you know, cell shaded all of this stuff. And this is the best that you could come up with. Um, I have this running joke where it was like, I'm like pretending I'm an animator. I'm like, dear diary, like today I did the, like I made a, like, you know, someone's chest jiggle in the exact perfect <laughs> proportion to, you know, whatever, you know, but, but like, and sometimes you end up with someone like a Masaki Yuasa who I adore, uh, who like, in everything that he touches, it's like, what are you, what are you on? What do you see? Do you even see in like regular color? Do you see like butterfly colors? Do you see mantis shrimp colors? Like, I don't understand how, and this is also just art in general, like how whatever it is that is going on in the same organ that we all have uh, is turning this out and making this part of my reality now yeah um, yeah the discovery yeah. of like auteur anime creators is definitely like there's something about like even okay like back in the like say again 20 years ago back when there was something about feeling superior that oh you're watching cartoons about a very special lesson or listening to your parents or like being friends well i'm getting my mind blown by like serial experiments lane especially <laughs> calm like i'm learning about like nihilism God, <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, no. anime, anime has like a really special place in my life because I met my partner through our anime class in college. <laughs> <laughs> and like we literally wrote like 10, 14 page papers on just like these animes that like no one has heard about and just like how music is um, so impactful in anime. Like I wrote a paper on like Samurai Champloo and. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. Yeah. Also, you know, shout out Nujabes forever. The original lo-fi hip-hop king. Actually, it's Evan J. Dilla, who shared the same birthday, which I <laughs> yes, always bring yeah. up because I'm like, this is crazy. Um, yeah, it's like just the everything about the anime aesthetic, which used to be so like rarefied and like so difficult to like find that connection. And like, you know, like I didn't talk about like most of my friends about it, or like we would talk about like Naruto or like Dragon Ball Z, uh, Sailor Moon, stuff like that. But yeah, like, you know, like I was 
the first time I watched like Gundam, you know, it was like off of this box set that I got when I was in China where the characters' names were spelled differently in every episode oh. because, you know, like most people were like subbing I've seen the stuff. Chinese subs before, yeah. They're like, it's like Google Translate like, subs. So, <laughs> so what is your name? Like, I didn't like... It would be like I would go online and then like try to look up stuff about the characters. And that's when I'm like, oh, that's like the actual way the name is supposed to be spelled. Um, but then it's like that was like all of that like borderline, like not really legal means of acquisition. And like all of that like develops a culture of like secrecy and protectiveness that uh, on the one hand can be very gatekeepy for a lot of people. But on the other hand, it's like, I think it's okay that the gate was like kept a little bit more <laughs> closed back then. Because <laughs> uh, I I don't know how I feel about the way that it's like now like a torrent out there in the sense where it's like a lot of the Asian-ness of it is like not coming through in translation in the same way. And it's like, on the one hand, of course, I want everybody to watch Nausicaa. Uh, of course, I want everybody to watch Tokyo Godfather's Millennium Actress or uh, Five Centimeters Per Second. or You know, like all this stuff is like, this is good. Like, I like it for these reasons. Um, but then it's like when something is like unleashed into a space where it has never been, existed in the same like outwardly public facing way before, like you run the risk of like, on a personal level being like, that's not what that means. You think you know what it means, but you don't actually know what it means. And like having that be flattened. But I guess this is like the case with anything that breaks into a mainstream where it's like whatever is the special secret resonant thing that you had to basically shelter from outside elements for so much of your life, like in the cage of your heart or whatever, uh, when it's now like a light that everybody can see you know, like, how do you like that is like, that's truly like a one on one problem at a certain point, you know, where it's like, yeah, culturally, there are things about the emergence of anime as like a mainstream force that I'm like, we got to talk about that. But then a lot of it is also just my own toggling back of my own like, like secret shame <laughs> or fear, you know, like, I was like watching Neon Genesis Evangelion with people like, and like, the, I would have like, like, as an adult now, and the idea of like showing any of my friends this when I was like 12 or 13 years old is like, no, no way, no way. I showed like one person the baseball episode in Samurai Champloo and he was like, huh? Like in high school. And I was like, no, you don't understand. It's so good. Like, <laughs> uh, I mean, like, like, like with, with like my friends from high school, we were all part of like the anime club and we had like a literary magazine where we like <laughs> we like had like like essays and drawings and like it was really a creative outlet for all of us and it really shaped all of us as adults now who are in like creative fields and um it's really funny how you like mentioned like that special thing that you had as a kid and now it's released out into the mainstream and it like what was special to you is now like a light that everyone can see. Uh, I feel that way about K-pop because <laughs> it was definitely something that I was shamed for, for listening to. And now like everyone listens to it. And actually I met most of my online friends through K-pop and it was just like the special bond that we had. And we reconnected because of a band that we liked and 
it's just like it's just really funny because we met when we were like 13, 14 years old. And then I suddenly we're going to concerts together across the country. I went to a wedding and I was like the maid of honor. And it was, <laughs> <laughs> so like when I was reading this, I was like getting all the feels. So I <laughs> like messaged my group chat with all oh of my these God. online friends. And I was just like, you guys, I'm reading a book and it's us. It's <laughs> us. You are my chosen family. And oh I love my you. God. <laughs> yeah, no, that the, the whole like, online friendship based out of like a mutual like shared passion for something that nobody else either knows about or understands um where it's like any number of things could have been the instigation for Santi and Sue anyway there's like there's so many things that could have like been the the crux of it right but the fact that it was something that like it was a little bit older a little bit weirder not something that they had anyone else to talk to about in their life um that was like for me, a lot of that was anime. So it was like a no-brainer to use that as a fulcrum. But yeah, like because I was listening to a lot of anime music, you know, I'd be like like trying to talk about Ayumi Hamasaki to like my my friends at school, and they're all like, no. You know, like, <laughs> like why would I be listening to this in this like in the way or like of processing it and like internalizing it the way that you're doing uh, when there's like all this other music around us. And then like also like growing up in the East Coast during like the emo heyday where it was like, you know, like everybody was like swagged out in Green Day, Take Back Sunday, Fall Out Boy, um, bands like that. And so coming in with like J-pop and K-pop, um, like I listened to like Boa, you know? <laughs> so like that was like nobody else was like talking about that stuff with me. Nobody else appreciated that like these Asian pop stars were like fluent in multiple languages so they could release all of their music in different Asian markets because that was all that existed for them back then in the same way. And like nobody was like trying to get into like this like super bubbly like hyper pop music that is now like truly like one of the foundational seeds for hyper pop as we know it in like Western music now. You know, like uh, what is it? Yeah, like everybody who contributed music, like TM Revolution, everybody who made music for Gundam uh, <laughs> walked so that 100 geeks could fly. You know, like this is just like, you just, I'm like, we were there. We, I knew it. And I'm like, on the one hand, it's like, I feel very vindicated. And also just like, yeah, like part of the reason that these like in relationships are so intense is because it was like, that was it. That was, we were all we had in the same way back then. Um, and like, I grew up in like a very suburban part of the country. And so it's like, unless you took the initiative to build that out within like your friend circle, like the way you're talking about the zine, I'm like, I'm like frothing at the mouth. Like, oh my God. Um, like, unless you took the initiative in that way, it had to be something that you worked on in your own time. It had to be something that you like did not discuss while the sun was still up in the sky. Um, yeah. I'm like getting we so heated. I'm creatures. so heated. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Like truly, actually nocturnal. Like that was when oh. it, like I was yeah, on exactly. my computer. Yeah. We were tweeting yeah. each other at like 2 a.m. last night. We're, we're on the same page here. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like at 2 a.m. I was just like, I should go to sleep, but I can also finish Fire Emblem if I stay up a little <laughs> bit longer. <laughs> um, I do want to, before you wrap up, I do want to touch on like the other core of your story, which is the romance between your main characters, sure. um, Santi and Sewell, and how, like we said, it, it stems from this 
connection found in, you know, appreciating high art anime. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess going back to, you know, your inspirations for this book, was the story in your head always going to be like a coming of age love story? So there was a part of it that was like the connection that develops between these characters did not always have to be what it was. But I think for me, the the romance aspect of the story was more just like, I had moments in my childhood where like the vision that I had for some of my quote unquote closest friends was like one that I had to basically make up on my own because like I'm messaging these people like throughout the day or whatever. Uh, Or like, you know, I'm like waiting for the moment that I can talk to them again. Um, But I don't know anything about them. And it's like the friends that I have in my real life all look and act a different way. And this is like being online, you're exposed to all different types of people who do not like, who just come up through experiences that you can't even imagine because you could only interact with what is in front of you. And so it was like, I wouldn't say that any of the people that I was like close to when I was online as a kid were like active crushes in the in the same way that like there was something like that happening for, even from the very beginning. But it was like, if you take the infatuation that is naturally there with a teenage crush and then you amplify that with the fact that you don't, you can't actually make anything like, so the pivot I'm going to make here is relevant, I promise. But like, like D&D podcasts and like this whole like podcast storytelling thing is like a whole art form of its own, like a whole creative space right now. Um, And I don't engage with that stuff, but I engage with the fan art that comes out of it, where it's like, you are told and only really told certain things about these characters and their journey uh, and everything else that you have to extrapolate from that exists in your head or the way that people will make like like AU, like alternate universe canons about like characters and anime and stuff like that. And then take these characters and then build like their whole like head canon around that baseline seed where that, that, potential for projection is so, so strong. And there's really almost no way to go, like to avoid that when you are in that kind of relationship. Because again, like back then there wasn't like, it wasn't as though you could like hop on FaceTime with someone and like actually put, you know, a face to the name or whatever. Like all you had was whatever it is that you told each other. And we would tell each other a lot. So it's like you are able to divulge the part of yourself that nobody can see and have that like what you might consider your truest self be the actual thing that people encounter first. And so when you take that and you start to add any sort of shade of romance to it, it's like this very quickly can become an obsession that is not necessarily healthy, um, but that is consuming in a way that like previously you would only be able to like maybe fuel that passion for like an idol or someone like that. Or there would be like the untouchable crust, like the older sibling of like someone that you were like maybe kind of friends with or like someone like that in your immediate realm. But now there was a whole new vector of space and feeling that you could access and that you could build on your own that again, like it doesn't really have anything to do with the object but it has everything to do with you. And when I started writing Beating Heart Baby in earnest, it was like, you know, like two roads diverged. And what is the one that is most, I would say, what is the situation that as a writer, like I can wring the most emotion out of? And it's like, that is the one. 
that is the thing that will make someone's brain and heart just instantly become like a ball of fire. That is the thing. Um, and so like the, that, like the different layers of connection and the different levels of relationship building that happen in the story, that was always a part of it. But the actual structure of the romance itself, um, as far as like, why do they, why do these characters want to return to each other? What is the thing that's going to make them incandescent? That was like a no-brainer at a certain point. And then it was like, okay, well, you know, like, how do I write about a crush? <laughs> if only it was so easy to forget what it feels like <laughs> to be totally infatuated and obsessed with someone. <laughs> that is sarcasm, by the way. Um, yeah, so. Yeah. I mean, it was a very, those feelings were very intense and it came through on the page, so. Yeah, cool. Yeah, Love to hear it. <laughs> I guess as we wind down this um, conversation, River, do you have any last questions for Leo? Uh, I don't have any questions, but I do just want to say you really captured that young desperation of holding tightly onto the present because you know that this will be one of the happiest moments in your life and it's going to end. And I feel like it matches the theme of sun showers so well because it's only like a brief moment where you get this golden hour and it's filled with sunlight and joy but also sadness and I just thought that you encompassed it so well so well done thank you I did not that is it is nice to be told something that you didn't think about but then as it like is said you're like damn yeah it makes you think (laughs) (laughs) no I'm like I'm being serious I sound insincere but um no it's just like yeah, that's like, I would say that the overall arc of BHB, it's like there are moments of these really intense happiness. But even when the characters are at their happiest, there is this undercurrent of melancholy um, that doesn't detract from the happiness that they have and will have. But it's more of the acknowledgement that like all of us are kind of, you know, we're in our own little thread of time and we know how fragile that is. And we know how lucky we are in a lot of ways to be in the exact position that we are and to have the relationships and networks, you know, the to continue with the thread thing, like what other threads are intersecting and like weaving together with our own in any given moment. But um, like I, I would say that the book ends hopefully, but it's also not like a, it's not not bittersweet, um, even though things are, like even though the, some things have been worked out, so much else is just like, you know, like it's unknown. You don't actually know what is, what would be on the next page if there was a next page. You don't know. And that's, that's just the way it is. Uh, <laughs> and that's just how, that's just how life is. And when you're younger, you have this sense of like, you, you're like told all of these things that are going to happen in your life and they're going to be like big, meaningful things and they're going to change your life and they're going to change you. And finally, you will be changed. You will be changed in the way that you were secretly hoping some like divine hand would reach down and like tap you on the head and be like, this is finally your moment. You're finally the person you're supposed to be. And like the cruelty of growing up is realizing that there is no divine hand. There might, there, there probably is nothing out there that will change you except for whatever it is that you can do for yourself. Um, and every person's own ability within like the culture, within the world to have that freedom, to have that like mobilizing energy is different. So I don't want it to be like, I'm not, I'm not out here trying to be like, 
you can become whatever you want to be. I'm not trying to like, you know, like Uncle Sam you about that. But at the same time, it's like, and I think like, yeah, like through the course of this conversation, I've made it pretty clear. Like there were certain things about my life that I was like, you know what? Like actually I can change. I can make this happen for myself in the way that as a kid, I so desperately wish that someone would kick me out of my inertia. And that would be the thing that finally got me to where I want to be. But no, that kick has to come from you to a certain extent. Um, because yeah, there are things that you can change and that should give you hope, even though you don't know what that actually <laughs> means in the arc of your life or whatever. Yeah. And that's part of becoming an adult is realizing, man, I'm just as lost and dumb as I was when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like, I can do more about it in ways that matter, but also like there is so much stuff outside of our control. So instead of like, holding like this to your sense of self to the things that you think matter the most to you like i just as a rule like i try to be i try to have an open an open palm and just let the world slide through because what else can i do yeah well leo's book is beating heart baby it is coming out july 26th uh, booksellers right. everywhere. Um, congratulations on your debut novel. Thank you so much for speaking with us. This was a lot of fun. I did not come in realizing we we're going to spend like 20 minutes talking about anime, but I'm glad we did. I'm going to be <laughs> honest. Uh, a lot of these conversations, uh, like a lot of conversations that I have with friends, um, once you get me started, it's like a known thing that like, <laughs> yeah, like you got to you got to turn the key to get me to stop. It's so. because all of us are nerds and all, <laughs> all of us have watched Satoshi Khan and all of these really obscure animes and we're like oh my god someone else knows about this I don't like, have to explain <laughs> what a Gundam is yeah like everybody knows everybody knows like not the new Gundams like Gundam 00 <laughs> yeah. Gundam oh my god Gundam Wing Gundam Wing is insane um all the Gundams are insane yeah well thanks again for joining us Leo and um we wish the best for your future endeavors and that was our conversation with Leo Min, the author of Beating Heart Baby, available at booksellers everywhere on Tuesday, July 26th, 2022. So if you're listening to this episode today, you'll be able to get this book starting tomorrow. Uh, thanks again to Leo for chatting with us and for all the inside conversations about anime and band geek life. Uh, just a reminder that you can find Leo's book as well as the other books featured on our podcast and more by going to the Books and Boba online bookshop. You can get to it by going to booksandboba.com and clicking on the bookshop link on the header. A quick reminder that our July 2022 Books and Boba book club pick is Before the Coffee Gets Cold um, by Toshikazu Kawaguchi. It is a collection of vignettes about a coffee shop in Japan that allows its customers to travel to the past, uh, but only until their coffee gets cold. We'll be discussing this book next week on our monthly book club discussion podcast. So if you have finished the book and have any thoughts, um, please let us know on our Goodreads forums or on Twitter. Um, as always, we love to include the feedback from our listeners um, in our discussions as well. But until then, uh, thanks again for listening. Thanks to Leo Min for joining us on our podcast. And we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Phil Yu, and I'm the host of All the Asians on Star Trek, the podcast in which I interview all the Asians on Star Trek. I'm talking to actors, writers, directors, stunt people, background extras. 
you know, all the Asians on Star Trek. Find out more at alltheasiansonstartrek.com. Part of the Potluck Podcast Collective. Live long and prosper.